you'd open your Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. As we go to the Lord this morning in prayer, I know that some of our young people are really bummed today because they start school this week. I feel bad for them because when I went to school, and no, there were no dinosaurs when I went to school, we actually had the month of June, July, and August off. Things have changed. Too bad. So uh, <laughs> I want to pray for them. Uh, you know, they're, as they go to, the, to school, I'm sure you're aware of that uh, besides getting an education, they'll be told lots of things. There's lots of influences that are there that are not good for them. Uh, and then also there are those uh, who do homeschooling, and they kind of follow the school calendar. And so... Uh, we don't normally pray for homeschool kids as their parents are praying for, um, as they uh, you know, have to educate them and do a lot of work. Uh, but we do want to remember them. It, it kind of marks the calendar as, as to when certain things begin and end. And uh, just because of how things are going in our country, uh, which are not necessarily better um, in, in the arena of education, we do want to make sure that we pray for, uh, for our young people because the influences are coming at them hot and heavy and very anti-biblical. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you this morning. We do want to ask, Lord, that you would protect those here that are going to, in one sense, have to endure public school. We thank you, Lord, for education and for the free education that many will get. Father, we know that a lot of ideologies that are really very much against you and against the scripture are going to be taught are going to be played out before them, are going to be manifested, are going to be lived out in many different ways. And so we ask that not only you would protect them, but you would help their parents, help them to think through the things that they're going to be exposed to throughout this year. Back to all of us, fathers, parents, we need your help to make sure that we can continue to teach our children what the Word of God says and to teach them how to think biblically. We do ask, Lord, for those who have committed themselves to homeschooling their kids, that you will bless them as they have taken on a great amount of responsibility and work that many others don't have. And we pray that, Lord, as they, as they study, prepare, get things in order, we ask that you would enable them, Father, give them the strength they need to teach their children, the skills they need, the knowledge that is necessary to make it in the world. And we're grateful, Lord, because for most of them, maybe all of them, their desire is to teach a biblical worldview, a biblical way of thinking to their children. And we ask, Lord, that they would be successful at that, that you would help them. Father, for those in our congregation that are teachers in, in various ways, public school and private school, we pray, Lord, that you would give them strength as they strive to live as believers before the world. We know, Lord, there are many different types of pressures on them we pray they would draw their strength from you and that we would remember them as we pray. Now, Father, as we gather together here this morning, our desire is not only to continue to worship you, but in that, Father, uh, we honor you by opening your word and focusing on what it says. We, we want, Father, to have a, a God-like understanding in the sense of we have your perspective, the paradigm that you want us to have when it comes to understanding life understanding history, understanding truth, whether it's spiritual truth or moral truth or whatever it happens to be, that, Father, that we would have a, a perspective that is 
heavily informed and guided by your word. And so we ask that you will bless the study of, your, of the scripture this morning. And as we continue, Father, now in the book of Matthew, we ask, Lord, that uh, you would give to us the information that is necessary, that we'd be able to think through it as Christians and to continue to have a growing and deepening understanding and appreciation of all that you have done for us. We do thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, it reads this way. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. Last week, as we worked through the genealogy that Matthew gave, we spent some time talking about the reasons why the women that are named in the genealogy were named, because that's not the norm, and also because there were some prominent women who were not named. And then we also looked at the end toward what we call the Jeconiah problem. Uh, that really is, was a, is a huge problem in how we may understand the genealogy. And, of course, Matthew gives to us really the answer to that difficulty, which is going to be the virgin birth of Jesus. So Matthew's genealogy basically presents the coming of Jesus as the pinnacle of Old Testament history. Again, after the apparent demise of the Davidic dynasty during the Babylonian exile, a shoot springs up from the seemingly dead stump. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So Jesus' coming results in both the restoration of theocracy and the monarchy because he is both Son of God and Son of David, the incarnation of deity, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So the detailed account now of Jesus' conception and birth explains what was implied in the genealogy. Jesus was miraculously, miraculously conceived by God without the involvement of a human father. And so this confirms Jesus' identity as Emmanuel and prepares the reader to understand the emphasis on Jesus' deity throughout Matthew. Again, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they, they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament gives husbands who, were, who suspected that their wives were guilty of premarital sex with another man the right to charge the wife publicly for shameful conduct. If she was found guilty, the penalty was death. 
Let me read to you from the book of Deuteronomy. It's rather uh, several verses, verses 13 through 21, but this gives you the background as to Joseph's thinking and to what was taught uh, and what was well known by the Jews at that time. And beginning in verse 13 of Deuteronomy 22, it reads, If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then hates her and accuses her of misconduct and brings a bad name upon her, saying, I took this woman, and when I came near her, I did not find in her evidence of virginity. Then the father of the young woman and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of her virginity to the elders of the city in the gate. And the father of the young woman shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man to marry, and he hates her. And behold, he has accused her of misconduct, saying, I did not find in your daughter evidence of virginity. And yet, this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity. And they shall spread the cloak before the elders of the city. Then the elders of that city shall take the man and whip him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give them to the father of the young woman because he has brought a bad name upon a virgin of Israel and she shall be his wife. He may not divorce her all of his days. But if the thing is true, that evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman. Then they shall bring out the young woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death with stones, because she has done an outrageous thing in Israel by whoring in her father's house. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So you can tell here that um, being a virgin when you marry was a big deal. It's a big deal for the entire nation. It was not anything to be... Um, to, to mess around with or to joke about, they are very serious. If, and again, as you saw, if the, if the husband falsely accuses his wife of not being a virgin, he would be whipped. He would have to pay a fine. And then no matter, and basically no matter what happens the rest of his life, he is, he is unable to divorce his wife. Divorce was rare in those days. Uh, but still, the idea was is that he was bound because of what he had done. He had brought shame to her and primarily to her family because of what he said, because it was a, in this sense, it was a community issue, right? It's a public issue, uh, because this is the, the nation of Israel. This is the chosen people of God. Everything you do represents the Lord. Uh, you are to be a testimony to those who worship false gods as to who the one true God is, and this is how he demands that we live, and we do so in honor of him. By the time that we have the story of Joseph and Mary, Rome had taken over Israel, one of the things that Rome would do when they would conquer a nation, even though they would allow a semblance of self-rule, is they would take away the ability of that nation's um, uh, right to capital punishment. They were, they were no longer able to um, uh, enforce their laws that required death. And so all the various laws in the Old Testament where Israel was given the command by God uh, or at least the option by God, to kill those who were guilty of certain things, death, they, they could not do that. They would have gotten in big trouble with Rome, and they would have brought down the wrath of Rome, and then Rome reserved that right for themselves. So what was going on in that time then is that uh, Joseph was still would have actually been required by the rabbis to divorce his wife. Obviously, her being pregnant already proves that she's not a virgin. In his mind, that's what's going on. Joseph, though, wished to spare Mary public embarrassment. I'm not sure how he was going to do that because um, him charging her with not being a virgin was supposed to take place before the, um, 
the Jewish leadership. There would be a public trial. Uh, so it's kind of hard to keep that a secret. Perhaps that's what he was contemplating uh, when he had that dream, when the, when the angel spoke to him, was how was he going to do this? Matthew indicates that Joseph's desire to put her away privately or quietly, that, that indicates the compassion and an expression of Joseph's righteousness. That Joseph's righteousness was being displayed by how he was handling this situation. Remember, until he has this dream, he doesn't know what's going on. All he knows is this woman he's engaged to marry is now pregnant. As far as he knows, there's only one way that happens. All right? And unless God tells him otherwise, he is thinking correctly. He's thinking logically. A lot of Joseph's contemporaries would have probably viewed the public disgracing of Mary as a righteous act. That they were upholding the law of God and the standard of God. Now, I'm not saying that they would necessarily be wrong in doing that, but he's not wrong in what he wants to do as well. Joseph's righteousness was the kind that exhibited itself through grace and mercy. He was willing, in a sense, to, to be, I guess you could even say, disgraced himself, because eventually word's going to get out what's happened. And he's, he is not going to put her out there so everybody's looking at her and feeling sorry for him. He is willing to do this in a quiet way, in a sense, so where it, it, when this is, is discovered, they're probably going to look at him and not her. Why did, why did he do this? What, what's going on with him? That kind of thing. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I believe that Joseph had a kind of righteousness that exceeded that of the Pharisees. Now, when Christ is teaching that, he is talking to a large group, and what he's going to be getting at is basically what their thought is, how in the world can our righteousness exceed that? Because they view the Pharisees as being the most righteous men in the nation. Uh, and so they would have assumed their holiness could never match that. Now, Joseph is not bragging about this, but Joseph is truly a right. He's a believer. You know, there's a remnant throughout the scriptures uh, within Israel of those who are true believers. So we wouldn't call him a Christian. That would be inappropriate. Christ had not yet died for sin, but they were true believers. And this man is living according to the word of God. He is he, he want, he, he's allowed the word of God to shape who he is as an individual. And so we see his righteousness then coming out in the way that he's dealing with this very embarrassing um, situation that would cause maybe, and I'm not saying he didn't get angry, he just doesn't say that he did, cause many to, be, to, to lash out in anger and to maybe almost want to be vindicated by taking revenge on this individual who's betrayed you. Because that's betrayal. In, in, the, in the deepest sense, this is a betrayal as far as Joseph is concerned. And yet we see how he responds. It's, it really is incredible uh, to see that. And so Joseph then does serve as a model of the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. He is, uh, you could even say that he is in one sense turning the other cheek. He, he is willing uh, to quietly suffer and not in this sense stand up for himself. Standing up for yourself, I know, is a big ideal in America, um, and uh, it's appropriate often, but not always. You know, there, there's a place for us to, to, to not do that, to overlook the sins of others. Uh, remember in, in Corinthians, uh, you know, they were suing each other 
and, and Paul asks a rhetorical question where the answer, I believe, is going to be screamed out loud. And that is, he asks this question, why would you rather not be wronged? In other words, when others wrong you, you don't have to always go and sue them. You don't always have to go and do this or do that. Be wronged, in a sense, absorb that, which I think is a, 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 good, um, a good stance for a believer. We know who we are in Christ. We don't have to run around and let everybody know how good we are or how we're innocent of any particular situation. If you're wrong, you're wrong. If you're ripped off, you're ripped off. It's, it's going to happen. And we don't always have to, you know, bring a spotlight on others because of how they've wronged us. Matthew 5, 38 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him also the other. And so it also tells us that we are to show kindness even to our enemy. I don't know if, if Joseph would have viewed uh, Mary as his enemy, but she did betray him. I mean, again, from his perspective, she betrayed him big time. Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you, uh, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So here we have uh, an example of Joseph who is loving someone who, in essence, as far as he knows, doesn't really love him, who's betrayed him. So I think what that gives us, and a little bit of insight, in this way, when Jesus was a little boy being raised by Mary and Joseph, this man who adopted Mary's son, Joseph, was a godly man. He would have been a very good influence on Jesus. Not that Jesus needed a good influence because he's not born with a sin nature. I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm saying is, is that he had an earthly father who was a righteous man, who was gentle, kind, and compassionate. I just think that's good, good to know. And good to see uh, the kind of character that he had. So again, even though Joseph and Mary were not married, Jewish law did require a divorce certificate to break the engagement. And so again, Joseph had decided that a quiet divorce was going to be the course of action that he would take. Again, Mary's suspected unfaithfulness not only, again, permitted such a divorce, but as I mentioned before, in the opinion of many rabbis, it was required. It was required for this to be done. So go back to the text, back to Matthew, Matthew 1. Joseph then is given a supernatural revelation to redirect him. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, so he's, this is on his mind, it's a big deal, he's thinking about it. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. When you read through the text, one of the things that's important, there's many important things, one of the things that's important is Matthew does emphasize the virgin conception and the virgin birth of Jesus. We, we live in a time where, and of course it's not a unique to our time, there, there are many within Christianity that, are, that try to downplay the virgin birth, that would try to de-emphasize it. 
saying that it's not that big of a deal, that it doesn't really matter. Uh, in fact, there are those who, even in this town, there are some who will preach that she was not a virgin and that the Bible does not teach that um, Jesus would be born of a virgin. They, they, I, I've listened to a few of the sermons. I, I know their reasoning. Matthew, I think, has already made it clear that Joseph was not in any way the biological father of Jesus and that Mary's pregnancy was, was God's doing because it says this, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. And then what does is, what is Matthew write? Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So right from the get-go, he makes sure he says that. Verse 20, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. He says it again. Then Matthew records this citation from Isaiah chapter 7, verses 22 to 23. What does it say? All this took place to, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew emphasizes it again in verse 25, where it says about Joseph, But knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. So it seems to be a pretty important point. So when individuals just kind of want to gloss over this idea, they're wrong. They're not paying attention to the scripture. They're kind of just taking the story out, and you may mention once that the Bible says something about her being, him being born of a virgin, but then you just kind of skip over it. This is said over and over again. It's God the Holy Spirit, it's done by God. Joseph did not know her. Uh, the conception was, was by God himself. She was a virgin. I mean, it just, it's just, in a sense, it's, it's pounding on that. In fact, we can even say this, based on what we just read in verse 25, that even after the wedding ceremony, they had no sexual relations until after the birth of Jesus. What does it say? But knew her not until what? She had given birth. So there's no way that anybody can even say, well, actually what happened was, is she really wasn't, I don't think you would say she wasn't that pregnant, because that wouldn't work. But the idea was, is, you know, she, she got, the moment they got married, she was pregnant first night, and uh, she just gave birth early. She was a virgin before, but no, that, that doesn't work. Because what does it say? The Word of God tells us, not until then. Now, they did have sexual relations once Jesus was born, because that is what the word until means. I mean, I, I thought we could figure that out. They did not until this happened which means then after that happened, it took place. So the way that Matthew states things with the word until or till, that would mean then that there, because there's a teaching out there, so maybe you've heard it, you know, the perpetual virginity of, of Mary, right? There's a Catholic teaching primarily, um, and that's untrue. It's not biblical. Uh, just kind of a side note, that's why, you know, if you're ever speaking to a Catholic, whenever they talk about Mary, they always call her the Virgin Mary. We don't do that. I don't ever say the Virgin Mary went to the cross when Jesus was crucified. I will say Mary, the mother of Jesus, went to the cross. But I don't say the Virgin Mary, because she wasn't a virgin. She was a, she was a virgin until she gave birth, and then after that, she had some kids. Right? That's why we don't use that terminology. There's some of the, some of the background of that, some, some of the teachings that I've read, they, they believed that the only way Jesus could have been born sinless was if she was sinless, and so that's why she remained a virgin, and they, they just kind of go on about some other things about all of that. 
and uh, it's not necessary. Matthew, just, just kind of give this to you, Matthew chapter uh, 13, verses 55, where there's a group of individuals who are not exactly enamored with Jesus, and they say, is, this not, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they're basically saying, look, we know who this guy is. We know his family, we know his background. He's not a prophet. He's all these things. People are, he, that's not what he is. Uh, there is an argument that's made that the word that's used here for his brothers and sisters could be translated cousins. Uh, it's not all of the best translations that exist all translated the same way. And when you do all the various studies, it's very clear this list of individuals here are the half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. And there's other verses that talk about different individuals that are related to Jesus. And so this idea that Mary remained a virgin is just untrue. Um, and uh, so we can just go on from there. There's some uh, writings by a guy by uh, Rosito Santala. And now you don't have to know who that is, but basically he's done a lot of research. Uh, he, he's a Jewish man. Uh, I'm not sure if he was a rabbi or not. Uh, he's just done a ton of research about this passage in, in, in Isaiah in trying to figure out what would people have thought during the time of Jesus, you know, this idea about Jesus being virgin born. Because when Matthew writes this, you know, the church is still early in church history. You know, there's not a whole lot of development in one sense what, how we think about things. You know, this is what's going on in the 50s and 60s um, uh, in, you know, A.D. In, in the church. What would they have thought about this emphasis on the virgin birth? So he says this, he says, prophecies such as Genesis 3.15, which is, talks about the seed of the woman crushing um, the head of Satan, and Isaiah 7.14, which is what we read out of Matthew, which many Jewish academics considered messianic, clearly require a virgin birth. The oldest uncensored Jewish source, source text, uh, the reason why he, he emphasizes uncensored is because there's been attempts to change things because you know, when certain religious individuals don't like what something says, they'll change it. I mean, this dishon happens in a lot of religions, uh, happens in, in history and ancient things that people discover. They don't like something, you cross it out uh, or find a way to get around it. So he talks about these uncensored Jewish uh, source texts, and they make these cryptic um, hints towards, this, towards a miraculous birth. That's, that when it comes to the Messiah being born, something unusual or something miraculous is going to take place. So the idea is there was, there was floating around within various Jewish circles an understanding that there was going to be a uniqueness to not just the life or the person of the Messiah, but his birth. So in one of them it says this, that it states that the Messiah will be born from a closed womb. I'm not sure what they mean by that. If, 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 you know, if they were thinking a, a woman is childish, childless and, and then like uh, um, Abraham's wife Sarah give birth suddenly she had a closed womb and then she gives birth so it'd be something like that they, they could have been implying that not necessarily uh, but again there was this idea that something unique was going to happen there is a five volume modern Hebrew dictionary and analytical concordance of the Old Testament no I do not have that <coughs> I'm not sure I could afford that but it gets into the word that's used in Isaiah for virgin which is Alma and it says this, Alma is used by Isaiah. It is used to describe the girl who would give birth to the messianic figure. It means primarily a young girl before marriage, which is always a virgin. This is why the authors of the Septuagint, remember that's the Greek translation of the Hebrew, 
translated that word with the Greek term parthenos, which means virgin. So again, that's just emphasized over and over again. So anytime you hear an individual saying that the virgin birth is not a big deal, they've not read Matthew very carefully because he keeps mentioning it. It's, we would call that a fundamental, I would call that a fundamental of the faith. Yeah, yes, you have to believe that to be a Christian. Now let me explain that real quick. All right, so there, it is possible that an individual can hear the gospel, understand the gospel, and not know that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so at that moment, they don't believe Jesus because they don't know. However, as a believer, when you are now reading the Bible and you come across something that is as apparent and glaring as that, you're going to believe it. Right? So basically, to, so I would say, to be converted, you don't have to believe in their virgin birth because you may not understand anything about it. But to be a Christian, we don't, we don't deny that. It's a fundamental of the faith. Uh, so if I was to suddenly hit my head and go bonkers, and then one day tell you, I no longer believe in the virgin birth, you do have a right to say, I don't know what happened to Bob, but is he even a Christian? Because that's a very clear teaching uh, of the word of God. John MacArthur says this about the virgin birth. He says, the virgin birth is the only way to explain how the Messiah could be both God and man. If Jesus had a human father, he was just a man. If he was just a man, he could not be the Savior. And if Jesus is not the Savior, then there is no gospel, then no salvation, no resurrection, and no hope beyond this life. God could have left us to our own devices, but he knew that the problem, sin and our separation from God, was beyond our ability to remedy. The core problem, as is identified throughout Scripture, is the problem of sin. Sure, there were and are other problems, problems of war, injustice, poverty, but clearly these are the symptoms of the core problem. And so the virgin birth is important theologically to us. The name Jesus in the Greek form is the name Joshua, which means the Lord saves. The name Jesus points us in the right direction. But the name itself is ambiguous in stating that the, what the Messiah's purpose is. We need the words of the angel who says, Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So from the very beginning we see why he is here, what his purpose is. The angel of the Lord goes on to explain that the birth of Jesus comes as a fulfillment to what God said through the prophet Isaiah. Again, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Matthew quotes Isaiah, it begins with the word behold. That was said approximately 700 years before the birth of Jesus. So when, the, so when that is quoted and it begins with the word behold, the word behold is a command. It's a command to look now. It's a command and it's a word that expresses strong feelings, strong feelings of expectation. So when this little baby is born, the angels, God is saying, behold, look. This is, this is it's a command. This is important. This is unique. And so that's what Matthew was doing. He is basically telling us, behold, this is not just some biography of some great teacher that Matthew has a lot of respect for. That's not what he's getting into. He is going to be helping us to understand who the Savior of the world is. 
that Jesus is the Messiah and Savior. And as we mentioned last week, he has come to save sinners. And that leads us basically into what we're going to close with this morning, which is the partaking of communion. When, when, when we say, behold, look at Jesus, we all should at least be thinking immediately, it's not just about his birth. Yes, the birth is obviously vitally important. But what we normally think of as Christians is the whole picture. Because you know what it ends with. Death, burial, and resurrection. And the reason for the death, burial, and resurrection. And because life can get very busy, and, and we are going in many different directions, the spending time of reading the Word of God always brings us back to who we are, who God is, what life is about, and what we need. Spending time in prayer reminds us of who it is that we must depend upon to be able to get through this life that we are living. And, and the, the focus continually goes back to God, to, to Jesus Christ. When we gather to worship on Sundays, again, that's part of the purpose, is to kind of, in a sense, shut out the world to a degree, to come back and to focus on God, to listen to what he has to say, to glean from the wisdom, but also to be encouraged and to be strengthened as we worship and honor him, to remind us of this relationship that we have with God that God has with us. Then within our worship, there are certain things that we do, and one of them is the partaking of communion, which is very specific, where the total thought process, our total focus is to be on one thing, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. It is that. When we partake of communion, we, you know, we pass the bread, what do we say? We talk about what, we quote Jesus, where he says, this is my body. But he doesn't just say, this is my body. This is my body, which was what? Broken for you. He was tortured and suffered, taking on our punishment for our sin. He was truly broken in that way. But along with that, then he passed out the cup, which said, this is my blood. But he doesn't just say, this is my blood. This is my blood, which is shed for you. It, it is symbolizing, really, his death. That's what, that's what these things are. The, the bread and the cup represent the death of Jesus. We, we would add, to be more maybe technically correct, it is the suffering and death of Jesus. He died for my sin. And so then when we partake of communion, these things are symbols and remind us vividly, because the longer you're a believer and the more that you know about the sufferings of Jesus, the more that that kind of sparks our imagination as we think about the death of Jesus, which we are to be thinking about, and that he, is, he did die for me in, in my place. But because these things are symbolic, there are some things we do need to remember. And this is, this is really very important. No matter how long you've been a believer, remember that the partaking of communion does not somehow put you in a special category where God's going to answer one of your prayers. That's not how that works. If there is sin that you're not dealing with, the partaking of communion doesn't suddenly now mean it's all okay. It doesn't mean that. Now, we don't teach that you have to be sinless to partake because none of us are sinless. We come as those who are forgiven and who are also struggling with sin. Key word would be struggling. You're seeking to overcome. And so I'm reminded of what Christ has done for me and that I am forgiven. But if there is sin you're holding on to and you're, you're not dealing with that, you know, you're, there is no attempt for you to overcome that or to resolve if it's an issue with another person. 
then, then don't partake of communion. Don't do that. Just let it go by you. God is very serious about these things. So don't think you earn points with God. You don't. If you're not a believer, partaking of communion is not going to bring forgiveness for your sin. If you are a believer, don't think that the partaking of communion is going to forgive you of your sin. We partake as people who've been forgiven already by God because of what Christ has done. So it doesn't bring you points. It doesn't earn you extra blessing. Now, I will say I think there is blessing in this, but not in the way that we often think of blessing. You know, it doesn't mean that there will be more money in your paycheck next week or that kind of thing. It doesn't mean that suddenly whatever issues you have in your marriage are going to be resolved. It still requires maybe hard work on your part. So there is a blessing in, in one sense, but there's not going to be that kind of blessing uh, per se, and you're not going to be forgiven of any specific sin, special sin, or all of your sin if we partake. That's, it, there's none of those things. But we're commanded to do so. And as I mentioned before, this does point to the, to the death of Christ and to the resurrection. Because what did Jesus tell his disciples? That we are to partake of this until, what, he comes again and partakes of it with us. And so we are looking forward to the soon return of Christ. 